An increasingly large regulatory burden is making it more challenging for wealth management entrepreneurs to strike out on their own. Nonetheless, we see a steady stream of people who become disillusioned with the product-led offerings at bigger firms and set up disruptive boutiques that make the industry dynamic and interesting, as well as keeping the big boys on their toes. Wealth Whispers, a PAM Insight podcast, where we look beyond the obvious and respond to today's challenges in wealth management and private client services. Today's episode is kindly sponsored by IPSX, the world's first regulated stock exchange for real estate. It is hosted by Alexander Newlove, editor of The WealthNet, Pam Insights daily news service for the wealth management sector. This month, I sat down with Mark Perchtold, who left Goldman Sachs in 2016 to found Omba Advisory Investments, which specializes in using ETFs to build actively managed portfolios for ultra high net worth clients. Will Proger, whose career included senior roles at Barclays Wealth, C. Horan Co., Kleinwalt Benson, and Saranac Partners, left his steady salary behind in the middle of the pandemic launching private investment office Williman Partners. Impressively, he's already broken even despite only eight months in business. Last, but certainly not least, Vikesh Gupta, another alumnus of Barclays Wealth and a man who wears multiple entrepreneurial hats. For the purposes of our conversation, he is the V in VAR Capital, a Mayfair, London-based family office looking after 40 clients and over a billion in assets, set up six years ago. Three people, three different businesses, but all motivated by the idea that clients could be better served outside the big name firm. They spoke to me about the competition for talent, how they cope with an ever-increasing regulatory burden, and what they learned during their first years in business. I thought the sort of logical place to start was the fact, you know, you all come from successful careers at sort of prestigious banks and wealth managers. And I'm curious as to what sort of prompted you to take the plunge and set up your own firm in the first place. Mark, with Omba, what was the gap in the market that you were trying to fill? And, and, and what sort of place do you need to be in sort of personally and, and mentally to move into entrepreneurship? I can answer that question in, 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 a, in probably an hour, but I'll try to be brief. I think from a personal perspective, I'd always wanted to do something entrepreneurial. So you know, it's always been back of the mind. But you know, you need to have had one enough experience in, in what you were doing before. So I think people trying to do things too early, they may fail. I mean, you know, I'm not sure what the optimal age or level of experience is for for that. You know, you're seeing a lot of very successful young entrepreneurs, you know, in, in their late teens and early 20s and the like who, who build great businesses. But you always hear the success stories. As you get older, you want the probability of of failure to reduce substantially. So for me, it was more about timing on the one hand, the, the right age, level of experience, and then very importantly, the right sort of backstop in terms of financial savings to, to take the plunge from the stability of a good job in a big organization to going on your own. And I think it was constantly that sort of trade-off in my mind over the preceding five years of my, my career within a big bank was, at what point do you do this? If you leave it for too long, you, you probably become a little chicken. Catalyst for me personally was, uh, you know, I'd had my first child and I thought, you know, I'll probably have a second or maybe a third. And then you start to get even more nervous about taking the plunge. So it was a function of many things which had come to a confluence. But the opportunity I saw 
was with respect to how wealth management firms were managing money using multi-asset portfolios for clients and that many of them hadn't yet fully embraced the use of ETFs. And ETFs had, you know, were continuing to gather steam. And this is sort of my thinking goes back right to sort of 2013, 2014, where in many pitches, we would be often up against the consultants and the advisors and the fiduciaries of these clients. And they would be challenging you on why your portfolio had been populated using active managers, which weren't beating their benchmarks. And I often found myself agreeing with them with, with a lot of their questioning. And I thought, you know, this, this, is, this is only... You know, gaining momentum and, and getting more steam. And I thought, if I don't do this now, you know, in 10 years time, I'll regret not having had, had taken the chance. Interesting. Thanks. Vikesh, how about you with, with VAR? How did you know the time was right to sort of go it alone? Sure. I, I would say there were some pull factors and there were some push factors. So on the push factor side, you know, my employer, uh, which I really rate and had a great learning with them, you know, they were going a certain way. You know, they were restricting uh, the offering, you know, there was a lot of uh, integration with retail. Some of the clients didn't like that. And I couldn't advise my clients on a variety of things, which a few years back I was able to as a ultra high net worth family office client. So there were, uh, you know, the, the way some of the big banks were going, not just Barclays, but many other big banks, I thought there will be, there will be an opportunity for more sophisticated clients to deal with independent houses. From a pull perspective, some of what Mark said, you know, I met a, a client's uh, CIO who came from a hedge fund background and he wanted to do something. And I knew that I, I couldn't do it alone. So I had to tie up with someone. And I thought I found the perfect partner in him. And hence, you know, he was pulling me to get it done. We were debating on this for almost two years. And one day he called me and said, look, I got a job in a hedge fund. He was an ex-hedge fund manager. And if you don't resign by Monday, then I'm going to take the job. And that was one week before bonus was being paid. You cannot plan too much for it. You have to do it at a moment of kind of, you know, a flash. So I said, fine, I'm going to resign. And when I resigned, my boss, who is always very kind to me, is saying, you must be joking. Just wait for one, one week. You're going to get hundreds of thousands. And I said, look, you don't know my partner. He's a, he's a mad guy. So I have to do it. So, you know, it, I've been planning for it. I've been thinking about it. But until my colleague pushed me to the brinks, I just couldn't do it. Brilliant. Thanks. Will, does that sort of resonate with you at all? You obviously took the very courageous step of uh, launching your business in the, in the midst of a pandemic. So, so what, was the, what was the rationale there? Weren't you sort of tempted to, to hold off a bit and wait for a more calm time? Yeah, it was sort of the mini version of the Nixon Madman theory, isn't it, really? You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, or some version thereof. So, look, I'd agree with all of that that's, that's been said. And, w- and what can I add? My um, flash moment, to use Vikash's very good phrase, came along a little bit quicker, but it landed in a place that had been an area of thought for me for a very long period of time. So why? I'd always wondered whether or not I was good enough. And I thought that, that I had enough strategic nous, if you like, to think through a lot of the problems of starting up a business um, and to move from what is a set, effectively a, a sales and relationship management job to one that is much, much more strategic. And you've got to do all of it all of the time. And that, to me, seemed like the greatest challenge. And I think if you, if you want to measure your success in any form of career, if you're able to do the day job and to do it within um, a business that you founded and made a success of, then I think you can look back on that career after a period of time with a degree of satisfaction saying that you built something, you were an employer, um, you, know, you added to the stock of wealth in, in, in the entrepreneurial community and everything else. And so those sort of idealistic factors that I think play through our minds to a greater or lesser extent 
for me though it came down to a friend of mine who now sits on our advisory board and a conversation one evening over you know a few glasses of wine as these things never to be happen and he just said to me very simply if not now then when uh, and at that stage i was approaching my mid-40s i had three kids i had a still have um, a, <laughs> a respectable mortgage a series of commitments school fees and all the things that mark talked about but he was right, you know, the time was starting to run out. If you sort of work back from where you want to be in 10 years time with this thing built and being successful, then you want to get it done and you want to get it done in time to, to give yourself and the business the best chance of success over at least a couple of decades. And that meant for me, age 43, I needed to get on with it. So um, similar story to Vic Ashes, but it came about in a, um, in a slightly different way. Um, and there was a final point I'll make. For me, you're right, I did launch it in the middle of um, the summer of last year. And that was both an opportunity and a risk. And in fact, it was one of the, one of the pull factors for me, because what it meant was that we could get into business pretty quickly uh, without the need for uh, an office, um, because frankly, we didn't need them at the time. And you know, if you were starting a business now, it would be one of the areas of capital allocation you'd look closest at, because it's not clear that you'd necessarily need one. And COVID, for all of the human tragedy, debunked the myth that credible wealth managers need a fancy office uh, somewhere smart. Now, Vic Ash has, has built his business somewhere smart, and that's fine. And he's done that carefully and thoughtfully for his client base. But it doesn't need to be there all of the time for every type of business. And we're trying to create something different that isn't defined by headquarters in London. Yeah, brilliant point. You know, people aren't looking at you sceptically because you're in you're at home anymore, are they? It's become very much the norm. And so sort of in, moving into the area of talent competition, you know, wealth management is obviously a relationships-based business and arguably in small businesses, you know, the chemistry of your teams is even more important. So how do you go about making your businesses attractive for people, you know, who are already well re remunerated and, and comfortable at the, the larger institutions? Vikash, did you want to pick up on that? Oh, no. Um, <laughs> you know, this is the biggest challenge. There are two reasons for that. One is the private banks pay a lot more than I thought they should pay when I was in a bank. So I always complain saying, oh, my God, you know, I get paid so little. But actually the payout compared to what many bankers do is actually quite decent. And that is a, a very important thing for uh, recruitment, you know. And uh, being a small firm, which is a lot more driven by results, and we don't have a big book for someone to come in and manage, you know, we have to align the incentives of the ta uh, talent with the performance. They find it very risky to jump and come to a smaller team. So frankly, you know, it continues to be a challenge. Uh, we have recruited uh, some bankers, especially those who believe in themselves or those who are fed up of big bank bureaucracy or politics, and they, they think that they can be successful in a smaller, more nimble operation. And Will, I appreciate, you know, you're very early on in, in building your business, but how are you thinking about the this, this sort of hiring issue as you look to expand? Yeah, so for us, it's the second steepest hill to climb, given where we are at the moment. Uh, the, the steepest one being to attract enough clients to make this viable. And uh, you never feel you're done on that, and we certainly aren't, but we're through the earliest phase of that, at least. On hiring people, I think for us, it comes down to a thought process that asks the question, where do you, what, what kind of business are you going to be in the long run? Why are you doing this? Are you building a business for sale? Are you building a very small, you know, one, two, three person, firm which 
private equity we kind of refer to as a lifestyle business? Or are you building something in between that, which is an evergreen partnership, where it might have a generational appeal to my family, to the family of other people who come along, um, but we're building this thing for value over 20 years, and that value may never be realized through an outright sale or a merger or any other form of transaction. It will be value that stays within the partnership. Now, we lean towards that third option at the moment. I think that although a lot of them, unfortunately, you've seen evidence of this through the consolidation that's happened in the sector, a lot of old-fashioned law partnerships or long-standing law partnerships, when they function really well, they were terrific because there was a generational succession plan through the partnership structure, and it was a very attractive option for clients. And it's an incredibly easy way to differentiate yourself from private banks who suffer from a very large amount, and, and any scale wealth manager, actually. We suffer from a large amount of staff churn. So we're thinking in that perspective. Now, how does that relate to talent? Well, you've got to find people who are going to sign up to that. And if you go down that route and you're straight with people, which you must be, of course, because no other way to be, you will exclude a vast proportion of the market who are just not interested in doing that. But what you will uncover in the process is um, a few hidden gems. And I think if you can find the right people in that perspective and you have people who uh, can be patient around the returns and see the potential for the success of it and the quality of life that they will have within it. doesn't mean that it's an easy job, it's not, but it's certainly, I think, more rewarding. Then if you can tell that story in an effective way, I think you can stand out. And Mark, how about you? How do you pitch Omba to people as an attractive place to work? Yeah, I think a lot of the points that uh, Vikash and, and Will have said uh, ring true with us as well. But uh, I think the, the, one of the biggest challenges really is, is, the, is as um, Vikesh indicated, that people in private banks are still paid a hell of a lot of money. And one of our biggest challenges is we, we're trying to keep fees to, to the end client as low as possible. Mm-hmm. So we use ETFs as a building block, which themselves are low fee, and we also keep our fees down. And so as a result, there's less revenue. And so you know, a lot of banks can afford to pay their staff more because their fees are higher. And we're trying to disrupt a lot of that. So, you know, one of the big challenges, and, and, and there's no shortage of talent sitting within the industry who are desperate to get out of large organizations. So what we try to do is, you know, make the firm and what we do compelling to them on sort of maybe two fronts. One is what we're doing in the industry and trying to disrupt so that they feel that they can be part of that journey. And then the second, obviously, is making the culture and, and the, the environment in which you work differentiated from being in a big, large organization. So there's not one answer to the question, but I think a lot of what we do is very different to how it would be in a in a large organization. And ultimately, I think it boils down to the people and you know the culture of the of the team. So regulation and compliance is obviously a, an ever larger slice of outgoings for for all firms, and the topic is basically inescapable. You know, when you come to talking about smaller, medium-sized businesses. So how do you keep the cost of compliance manageable within your businesses, especially you, Mark? You know, given what you've just said about your your fee structure. It's very difficult. <laughs> um, we've gone the route of not uh, going under a regulatory umbrella, which was a, a big. Big call to make right at the beginning, but I just you know having gauged from from the type of client base with whom we work, you know they typically you know balance sheets north of fifty million pounds and, and used to working with large organisations. We wanted to be properly regulated in our own right. So I remember spending months preparing the application to the FCA myself, waking up at four in the morning, stressed out and thinking I've got to get cracking on this and writing long you know, business plan documents and control environment documents to, to get that application ready together with uh, David, our CEO. And we, you know, in retrospect, it's been the right call. But, you know, when you get going, it's, it's very nerve wracking. 
Well, you've gone down the appointed representative route initially with the goal longer term of being directly authorised. Can you just talk us through that decision-making process? You know, what are the pros and cons of appointed representation as opposed to direct? Again, it goes back to the moment when we started this. And at that stage, because of the disruption that COVID was having across the industry and particularly um, within the FCA, as we understood at the time and we asked the questions, the the wait time on direct authorization could have been up to a year at that stage, which is entirely understandable. And whether that was the right read at the time, uh, you know, I had it from a couple of different sources. And, you know, it meant for us that if we were going to get into business quickly uh, and get up, get up and running and prosecute the plan, we <laughs> there was a default option. There was only really one default option, and that was the appointed representative. There is definitely an ambition in this business to be directly licensed for all the reasons that Mark correctly pointed out. The, the, the advantages of the AR route is that aside from speed to market, you can set yourself up so that you align the interests of the regulatory umbrella or regulating environment with yours. And so much of our business is about um, creating the right alignment of interests, whether those are commercial or ethical or whatever else it might be, that uh, if that option exists, I think that's an interesting one for people to explore. It may not be right for everybody. But it means that for businesses like ours, our fixed costs are very low. Our variable costs are a much greater proportion of our overall cost budget. And the implication for all of that is it significantly de-risks the startup nature of the business and ways in which you can not only set up a regulated business, adhere to all the correct standards, but also give yourself the best chance from a cash flow point of view of making it over the line, I think are things that if you can bring all that together, then you're, you've potentially got a winning combination. Vikash, I want to move on to the issue of, of client trust. Obviously, during the pandemic, it's become a lot more difficult to, to meet in person. And I'm curious as to how you handle this as a smaller business. You know, when you're trying to persuade somebody to, to hand over a large sum of money, they won't necessarily have heard of your firm as a, as a household name. Um, how do you sort of go about building that trust and has that been a challenge over the last year? Uh, surprisingly, no, I would say. Um, that I thought was would be the biggest challenge, especially last year, because when I started the firm, most of the clients I onboarded in VAR were my clients in Barclays. And, um, you know, there was obviously a relationship and a level of trust in the team and myself. But in the last three years, most of the clients we have onboarded have not been known to us before. So they have been new to VAR Capital. And I would say, you know, there's a couple of ways you can fix the trust. A, be very honest about what you can and can't do. And, you know, try and show humility with the clients. That comes across very well with many people. Second thing I would say is build your marketing and PR in a way that when the client Googles you, not some things come up, you know. So, for example, we have got some mentions in FT, you know, we've got some mentions in various newspapers. Spam has been very kind in giving us a couple of platforms. And when people Google us and when they go to your website, for example, make sure you have updated content, you publish regularly so people know that you just don't, uh, you're an active uh, wealth management company. And last thing I would say is use your clients. So, no, we have a couple of clients in our red book and we always, we know that we almost don't have to ask them for references. And we are quite bold with some of our, in some of our pictures where we said, look, I would almost recommend you talk to our clients because they can tell you how different their experience has been having dealt with some big banks. And that's been very, very powerful for us. 
Mark, how about you? How have you found the the business development landscape over the last year? And and is the sort of security aspect something that comes up at all when you're when you're prospecting? Oh, that, that's definitely not been an issue at all. You know, mm-hmm. given as we touched on the regulatory status and who we are, and and our clients know us pretty well. And um, we also fortunately had our best year ever last year during what was a tough year for many businesses. Some parts I feel I feel guilty, but. A lot of the, the groundwork had been done in prior years and, and, and came to fruition during during the COVID year. However, we we were very stayed very close to our clients during the, the crisis, and I think that was one of the differentiators. And something I learned in my prior role in the bank is, you know, you want to be on the front foot when there when there's a problem. But having said all that, and it, it was a great year for us financially. It's been very difficult to prospect new business. You know, the, there are a lot of ultra high net worth family office clients who are still old school, most of whom are older and could be my parents or grandparents. They still want to meet you face to face and sit over a meal or, or, or a coffee and, and look you in the eye. And they're not used to using Zoom or Teams for, for a meeting. And so a lot of warm situations, which sort of had been brewing in, in 2019 year, which were close to, you know, closing and, and coming to fruition, you know, it didn't happen because people couldn't see you for that face-to-face meeting. So, you know, the, the inability to travel, I think, has definitely had an impact. Great. When I emailed you to set up this session, I asked if there were any other issues that you wanted to cover. And Vikash came up with the excellent question of um, sort of reflecting on your first year in business. How was it? And what were some of the lessons you learned just during that first year? Well, I think you're uh, you're still in your first year, so you're an obvious obvious place to start on this one. Has there been anything that you've learned that surprised you particularly, or that you weren't expecting? Goodness me. Uh, okay. Um, well, I suppose the first thing is is just don't be too hard hard on yourself that you can't get everything done at the speed that you want to get it done. And I mean, we all we all spend time inside organisations talking to entrepreneurs and saying we really understand how you think. I always smile at, at, at businesses, whether they're big banks or other people who go around saying, we've got an entrepreneur's team. And then you ask how many people on that, on that team have actually started and started up and run a successful business. And the answer is normally zero or very close to it. You don't have a clue until you've tried it. And it's, it, it's, it's, it's tough, right? It is really difficult because it's a pretty lonely experience. Um, it's quite scary. The gap between success and failure is pretty massive. And I, it is... It is at times incredibly challenging, but that's what makes it rewarding. All of these things, you know, you've heard before. The lessons that I would draw from it are be in a patient hurry. So what I mean by that is complacency is a thing that kills you, but understand that you're not going to get everything done overnight and it's not failure because you don't get done everything done overnight. Focus on a limited number of things that you can get done quickly that give you the sense that you're winning because most of this is if you're the sort of person who's going to take the chance to do this, you're probably going to succeed. The thing that's going to hold you back is if you don't get success quickly and it dents your confidence and then you can't get it done. So managing that almost that emotional cycle is incredibly important. And find people that you can check in with frequently who can give you an independent boost around what you're doing. And don't sit in a, in a small place by yourself thinking that this is going good, bad or indifferent because you're your personal analysis of it, because you're so close to it, will probably be off beam. Mm, well said. Mark, how about you? Lessons learned in your, your first year. Ex- expect the unexpected. <laughs> I think uh, I'd echo a lot of what uh, what Will said there. And um, 
you know, the, the small wins are important. You know, feel like you, you know, you need to feel like you're making progress all the time. It can be quite lonely and you can feel despondent at moments. But, you know, one of the sort of things I tried to do in that, in, certainly in that first year was say to myself every single day, I must remember how hard I worked for another organization and the pressure I felt working in this, in this, in this big bank. You know, I need to work harder now than ever. And, and so, you know, the, the actual effort applied on a day-to-day -day basis to moving forward was with full vigor, but with no frustration ever because you knew you had a bigger picture and, and, and end goal in, in play. And so it's, it's just a different work ethic that you apply to your day-to-day. -day. And I think waking up every day and feeling energized and just moving forward is, is critical. And I remember having this um, Gantt chart that I'd built uh, during, during my gardening leave and thinking about all the things that I, that I would need to do in the future and trying to look back on it and think, you know, did we achieve each of those things at the right stage? And, you know, I was, I was surprised at how different it ended up looking. You know, it's just, you, you think you know how it's going to go and you plan things. And, and I would encourage people to plan things. The plan had to change and it still continues to change, actually. And, and you have to be quite flexible and dynamic. You, you might have an end goal, even in terms of the, you know, the final things you do for clients. Our business model is not identical to what I envisaged on day one. And you learn along the journey, too. But you have to be moving forward all the time. And if you're moving forward a little bit every day and every week and every month and every quarter, and you can see that progress in different ways, you know, I think that's very motivating. And it becomes even more important that that's the case when you have other people with you. So I think expect the unexpected, but work very hard and, and dress, you know, don't wait for things to come to you. It's not going to happen. You've got to go there and, and grab them. Vikash? I mean, I won't repeat what uh, Mark and Will said, but maybe I'll give a couple of examples. The first example was when we started VAR, two clients had backed us on day one. Eight months later, we didn't have a third client because although all the clients loved me, they said, oh, yeah, yeah, come back in a few months because they just wanted me to see, wanted me to get more stable, you know, see a bit of a track record, see a bit of establishment. And my wife, I remember very well, uh, said, look, are we um, going to be able to pay our mortgages? And I said, don't worry, I'll drive Uber part-time, but I'll not go back to the big organization. And that is also reflected in a lunch I had a few months later with my then boss, Christian Bersham, and he said, look, you know, Barclays' job is there for you to come back if you need to. Because I was kind of crying in front of him saying, oh my God, I don't know how I do it. And I said, look, Christian, you know, I'll become a homeless, but I'll not come back to the big organization anymore. So while the first year was very, very challenging, I would say really, uh, when I look back, it was like, you know, the best time of my life leaving a big place. And, um, you know, after month eight, you know, one more client came, then one more client came, and then I got more and more confident. And then, you know, we had almost a rain of client we couldn't handle. So, you know, first year is going to be very, very tumultuous, um, you know, but also very exciting. I would say I was also very lucky because I had a few partners and all three of us would huddle in a room and literally cry saying, oh my God, you know, what's happening? We don't have any clients. You know, so I, I would say if possible, try and get partners or try and get people who you can, you know, share your uh, thing with. Be patient. You know, wealth management is a very long game. You know, clients will come if you have the right business model. And the last thing I would say is just um, expect the unexpected as, uh, as Mark and Will alluded to. Brilliant. Thanks everyone for your wise words. Perhaps we'll have an exodus of entrepreneurs from the big banks after that. It almost goes without saying now that views on the traditional 60-40 portfolio have changed in recent years. Investors are looking for other ways of finding income, given the declining yields from bonds and other income-bearing assets. 
This is something our next guest, Roger Clark, the Head of Capital Markets at IVSX, has given a lot of thought to. And he thinks that smaller, more agile investment managers have the ability to think outside the box in solving this conundrum. So there's been much talk in the wealth management industry, Roger, over the last few years about whether the balanced sort of 60-40 portfolio has had its day. Um, given your conversations with wealth managers, do you think that this holds true? And if so, how are, how are smaller firms and boutiques sort of thinking about that 40% that once would have been given over to bonds or fixed income? Well, it, it, it's fascinating, as you say, how, how much this has been talked about in the last 12 months. And I think that um, markets in the last few weeks have proven quite uh, quite emphatically that there absolutely is still a place for a 60-40 sort of approach to a multi-asset portfolio. Uh, anyone who is um, completely overexposed to equities has had a uh, tough few weeks. Interestingly, anyone who's overexposed to bonds has also had a tough few weeks though as well, because clearly when um, uh, government bonds were trading where they were in the last 12 months, uh, and indeed more than a quarter of all government bonds in issue globally have been at zero or less over the last 12 months, clearly there was only really one way they could go in terms of capital values. And so even a small rise in the yield curve in terms of where rates are on a historic perspective has meant big capital losses for people in bonds. But you can't solely be in equities. So yeah, wealth managers need to have a proper portfolio strategy in place. And so what I find wealth managers I speak to are, have been focused on for some time is alternative ways to hedge your equity portfolio. Alternative ways to to get some sort of um, income backing uh, and some sort of diversity. And as, as we know, some people have decided that Bitcoin has become something of a proxy for gold and can do that. Um, that's probably at the brave end of the spectrum. A lot of people have looked at infrastructure and uh, and indeed you'd have to think that infrastructure spending by governments is, is going to continue to, to grow. Uh, and of course, private equity hedge funds and, and lastly, real estate have always been the obvious alternative sectors, uh, sectors to go to. And I think I get the sense that that's how investment uh, wealth management firms, and particularly smaller ones, are thinking. They're looking for infrastructure. They're looking for asset-backed sources of income. Uh, infrastructure and real estate are the obvious too. And, and I mean, in light of that, obviously, the, the overriding theme of today is entrepreneurs. But what, what value do you think these sort of smaller and, and maybe more agile firms can can add in that environment? Do you think there's there's any advantage there in terms of their their internal processes and things? I I, I really do think I, I, you know the, again the last few weeks um, have have uh, a lot of people have been saying commenting on it's it's the return of the stock picker, uh, and I know we might talk about that a little bit um, a, a little bit separately. But I think that what large firms suffer from, uh, and again I hear this often when I speak to to investors, you know the regulatory pressures, the cost pressures, how expensive it is to run a compliance function, um, leads one to want to gather more and more and more customers, obviously. And then centralized investment strategies 
mean that if you've got a lot of customers, you kind of, along with the regulatory push to do this as well, you kind of have to focus on large caps. You have to focus on big, big investment and propositions, whether it's um, alternatives, bonds or equities, you're always looking at the bigger ones. And what that's tended to mean is very crowded trades. Everybody is chasing the same big names, and that's fine when they're going up. It's, uh, it's not so good when it's coming down. I think this is where the real opportunity for the smaller firms lies. And I find it really refreshing when I speak to smaller firms that they, they are looking beyond the obvious trades that everybody is in. And they're able to look below the, you know, I, I mean, some of the minimum investment sizes that some of the firms I speak to uh, have astonishes me. You know, some firms say I can't look at anything less than 500 million. Some firms say they won't look at anything with a market cap of less than 2 billion. That's a lot of opportunity that you are just leaving on the table and great for the smaller firms. And I think the rise of the small cap specialist, the re-emergence of the small cap specialist will be long overdue and welcomed by everyone. So it sounds from from what you're saying, like you think stock picking and active management, despite, you know, sort of being trashed to a certain extent over the last decade, do you see those sort of making a comeback over the next year or so? Yeah, again, we've had some quite choppy markets in recent weeks, and um, it, it has been proven that stock picking can, can succeed in these markets, even when the crowded trades are down. I think this is where people's clients, customers want to go. I thought it was fascinating um, to see recently in um, Hargreaves Lansdowne's uh, investor reporting that uh, their revenues from single stock trading last year were up 148%. Uh, their revenues from trading funds uh, were flat. The, the, the investors out there want to start to pick single names. They want to start to take a little bit of control over their own portfolios. Now, that's obviously in the self, self-invested segment. But if that's what the, the, the um, self-investing uh, stock picker wants to do, it follows that that should be what we're going to see more of amongst the smaller uh, wealth management firms as well, I think. Um, obviously, one of the key concerns for clients at the moment is is liquidity, and your specialism is in real estate. Obviously, historically, a very liquid um, asset class. So, can you just tell me a little bit about how you're sort of hoping IPSX is going to address this this liquidity concern? Yeah, I, I mean, w- what we're doing at IPSX is is on the one hand nothing that um, revolutionary. On the other hand, we, we are changing the world. And why, why do I say that? I mean, we've, we've built a stock exchange. Um, now, stock exchanges have been around for 300 years, but we've built a new stock exchange. And there's a lot that goes into that. The connectivity, the technology, linking all of the data together, linking all of the, uh, the the advisors and intermediaries that make a stock exchange work, the market makers, the live pricing. There's a lot of work goes into building that exchange, which it, it is one of those things that you only notice it when it doesn't work. Well, we've built it, it, it works, it's tested, and it's ready to go. Well, so far, so what? So, you know, we have things like London Stock Exchange, Euronext, NYSE already. But what we've then done is decided to apply this pure to single real estate assets and, and, and very homogenous portfolios. 
That means that what we're bringing to, as you say, a, a traditionally very illiquid asset class. And just as an example of how illiquid it is, I was talking this morning with uh, with an owner of, uh, of uh, a piece of real estate who told me that um, in autumn last year, they, they had it under offer to sell it. And at the last minute, that bidder pulled out. So they went to the underbidder to to sell that same asset and that transaction closed last week you know that's it's taken them nearly six months to um, to actually just go to the underbidder it, it's incredible how illiquid it is how slow it takes how long it takes to get transactions done on the other hand once an ipo has been done onto our exchange um, of, of the the asset um, you as an investor it will take you precisely 15 seconds to sell because you'll pick up your phone you'll log on to Aquinity or interactive or Jarvis whoever you want to use and you'll be able to trade the shares in the same way as if you were trading Scottish mortgage shares or Vodafone shares or NatWest shares and you'll do it in 15 seconds now that's because we have a system of market makers we have the likes of Peel Hunt Pammy Gordon, um, WH Ireland, Canaccord, all ready to make firm two-way prices in the shares. So that's a guarantee of liquidity, certainly compared to, say, the open-ended funds, some of which are still gated one year on. Um, it, it's guaranteed, guaranteed liquidity. There will always be a price that you can trade at. Interesting. And sort of when, when I'm out speaking to wealth managers, you know, who have decided to, to set up their own outfit or, you know, go it alone, the need for sort of independence on the investment management front, i.e. not just selling products and sort of transparency from the client's point of view are themes that, that come up again and again. So just, just looking again at real estate specifically, REITs are, often, are obviously a good option that offer the sort of inbuilt diversification and, and decent yields historically. Like why IPSX as opposed to a REIT? So I, I suppose the first thing I would say in answering that is that uh, companies that list on IPSX can be REITs. So they, they will be um, tax transparent uh, in the same way. And, and of course, that tax transparency is a great thing about REITs. The whole concept back in 2007 was the idea that you turn this dividend income into uh, Schedule A rental income rather than Schedule D dividend income. It's like owning property. So you receive your income as, as rent. It's like owning property, but of course it isn't the same as owning property. Part of the problem with the listed REITs is that they are a very small part of a broader stock market. Uh, the, the, in the UK, the REIT sector is less than 2% of the overall stock market. I mean, when you put it into context, it's, it's astonishing. The whole of the listed real estate sector is about half the size of Unilever. So people don't really follow it particularly. I know without getting into talking about MIFID too, but the fact the, the fact is that the research coverage on listed REITs is, is is pretty minimal. It's largely irrelevant as far as the big institutional uh, equity investors are concerned. It's a bit of an orphan asset class in the listed REITs sector. And yet, real estate is as big an asset class as bonds. It's as big an asset class as equities. It should, you know, most wealth manager, management clients like real estate. They probably have some uh, already. Real estate is a really 
natural part of any multi-asset portfolio. So you ask what's different about IPSX? Well, what we're trying to do, what we're going to do is effectively allow people to, to have securitized, regulated, liquid real estate in their portfolio, not shares in property companies which happen to have a REIT tax status, but are part of the broader market. And the problem with being part of the broader market is going back to what we were saying earlier on about how consensual and correlated markets have become in the last 12 months. If you own shares in British land and Apple drops 10%, your shares are going to go down. And that's got nothing to do with the value of the underlying real estate. It's just because of correlation in uh, uh, all mainstream markets. Because we've created a pure real estate exchange, those assets are going to trade like real estate and not like equities. That's why we needed to do it. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Wealth Whispers, kindly supported by IPSX, the world's first regulated stock exchange for real estate.